I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. How about yourself? I am, as always, hanging in there as best I can. All right. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Cabaret with music by John Kander, lyrics by Fred Ebb, book by Joe Masteroff, based on the play I Am a Camera by John Van Druten, which was based on the 1939 short story Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. Cabaret opened at the Broadhurst Theater on November 20th, 1966, transferred to the Imperial Theater on March 7th, 1967, and transferred again to the Broadway Theater on October 7th, 1968, before closing on September 6th, 1969, with a total of 1,165 performances between the three locations. Cabaret was directed by Harold Prince, music directed by Harold Hastings, and choreographed by Ronald Field. The original cast included Joel Gray as the MC, Jill Haworth as Sally Bowles, Burt Convey as Cliff Bradshaw, Lottie Lenya as Fraulein Schneider, Jack Guilford as Herr Schultz, Edward Winter as Ernst Ludwig, and Peg Murray as Fraulein Kost. Cabaret was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, winning eight, including Best Musical and Best Original Score. Cabaret opens in 1930s Berlin. We find ourselves in the Kit Kat Club, a seedy cabaret. The MC appears and introduces the club's dancing girls and waiters, each with their own unique proclivities. From this point, the story will use the denizens of the Kit Kat Club as a Greek chorus-style commentary throughout. The scene shifts to the train station, and Cliff Bradshaw, a young American writer, steps off the train. He meets Ernst Ludwig, who offers him a tip for a boarding house that might have a vacancy. Cliff travels to the boarding house and meets the landlady, Fräulein Schneider. She offers Cliff a spot for 100 marks, but Cliff can only afford 50. They debate and haggle, and Frau Schneider eventually relents and accepts 50 marks for the room, observing that life has taught her to accept whatever it offers when she can. That night, Cliff visits the Kit Kat Club and catches the act of British singer Sally Bowles, who entices and flirts with the audience with her song. After the performance, she meets Cliff and asks him to recite poetry for her, and he chooses, for some reason, Casey at the bat. Cliff invites her home, but Sally refuses. Her boyfriend, who happens to own the cabaret, is the jealous type. The night ends with Sally and the club ensemble finishing their musical set. The next day, Cliff is visiting with Ernst and trying to teach him some English when Sally appears from nowhere. Max saw her with the young writer and has thrown her out of the club, so naturally, she thought of Cliff and now wants to stay with him in his room. Both Cliff and Frau Schneider are hesitant, but are eventually won over by Sally. Back at the club, the MC and two of the club's dancing girls sing a song about the unusual nature of Cliff and Sally's cohabitation. We are then introduced to Herr Schultz, 
an elderly Jewish shop owner who specializes in fresh fruit. He gives Frau Schneider a rare treat, a ripe pineapple. She is entranced by the gift and seemingly by Herr Schultz. The scene shifts back to the Kit Kat Club, where a young waiter starts singing a patriotic song to the fatherland, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. But the song starts showing some dark undertones, a portent of what's to come. Time passes. Cliff and Sally are still living together and have seemingly fallen in love. Cliff realizes that the situation is untenable, but is enjoying himself too much in the moment. Sally approaches Cliff with the news that she is pregnant and does not know who the father is, and so she is not sure she wants to keep the pregnancy. Cliff excitedly tells her that the baby could in fact be his, and that is enough reason to keep the pregnancy for now. She seemingly agrees. Ernst then enters their room and offers Cliff a job. He will pick up a suitcase in Paris and bring it back to Berlin. Easy money for the cash-strapped writer. He agrees. Commenting once more, the MC sings a song about the value of earning money and how one sometimes must do some distasteful things to stay solvent. Frau Schneider has caught one of her boarders, Fräulein Kost, bringing back gentlemen to her room for activities. Schneider forbids this, but Kost ignores her, stating that she sees Herr Schultz going into Schneider's room all the time. Schultz steps forward to defend the elderly landlady and tells Kost that they are engaged to be married. Having run off Kost, Frau Schneider thanks the fruit seller for lying to defend her honor. Schultz replies that it wasn't a lie and proposes to Schneider on the spot. A few days later, Frau Schneider and Herr Schultz are having an engagement party. Cliff arrives late, but has the suitcase, which he hands to Ernst. Fräulein Kost, looking to get some revenge on Schneider, tells Ernst, who is now seen wearing the armband of the Nazi party, that Herr Schultz is a Jew. Enraged, Ernst confronts Frau Schneider, telling her that it is a poor idea to consider marrying a Jew in these times. Following this confrontation, Kost, Ernst, and members of the Kit Kat Club reprise Tomorrow Belongs to Me. But now the song has mutated into a dark and grotesque march. Act two opens in the cabaret, where the MC joins the dancers in a kick line that eventually morphs into a goose step. Herr Schultz and Frau Schneider are standing in the fruit shop and discussing their upcoming wedding. Frau S. is worried, but Herr S. reassures her that everything will be all right. Then a brick is thrown through the shop window. Despite his reassurances that it was just a simple children's plank, Frau Schneider is afraid. Back in the club, the MC performs a song and dance with the dancer dressed as a gorilla. And he admits that he is in love with her. Shocked at the audience's reaction, he chides them to be more open-minded, concluding with the line, if you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. Now we're going to take a second and unpack this here just really quickly. Um, in his 2003 book, Our Musicals Ourselves, A Social History of the American Musical Theater, author John Bush Jones writes that this line was intended to shock the audience and make them consider how easily and unthinkingly they accepted prejudice 
but protests and boycott threats from Jewish leaders in Boston led Ebb to write an alternate line, she isn't a Miskite at all. Back at the boarding house, Frau Schneider goes to Cliff and Sally to return their engagement present. The wedding is off. When pressed as to why she is giving up, Schneider responds that she has no real choice and that he would make the same decision. Fed up, Cliff announces that he is leaving Germany and taking Sally with him. She refuses, and the two get into a heated argument. He tells her to wake up to all the upheaval and turmoil surrounding everything, and she responds that politics have nothing to do with their affairs. She storms out and returns to the club. Cliff follows, and the two argue some more before Cliff is pulled away by Ernst, who has another courier job for him. Cliff refuses, and Ernst asks him if it was because of that Jew at the party. Cliff throws a punch at Ernst, but is quickly beaten down by Ernst's Nazi bodyguards. On stage, the MC reintroduces Sally to the crowd, and she sings that all of life is a cabaret. The next day, Cliff is packing to leave Berlin forever. Herr Schultz enters Cliff's room and tells him that he is moving to another boarding house. Schultz also comments that things are bad now, but they'll soon get better. After all, he understands the German people because he is German himself. After he leaves, Sally appears and quickly reveals that she has terminated her pregnancy. Distraught, Cliff slaps her and then begs her one last time to come with him to safety. She responds that he knows she hates Paris. Heartbroken, he leaves her behind. The final scene opens with Cliff on the train to Paris and working on his novel. He writes, There was a cabaret, and there was a master of ceremonies, and there was a city called Berlin in a country called Germany, and it was at the end of the world. Back in the Kit Kat Club, the MC reprises the opening of the show and welcomes everyone back to the club. But the music has morphed into a grotesque look into the darkness that Germany is becoming. I actually want to take a minute here and kind of talk about the ending before we get into more musical matters of the show. Um, the way the show was originally staged the final scene in the Kit Kat Club, you have the MC, you have the Kit Kat Club dancers, and you have Sally. Well, everybody but Sally is actually in a stark white background. So they've actually flown out set pieces to change the look of the cabaret to literally this bright white empty space. And as the music is ending, they start pulsing the lights almost as kind of being this symbolic representation of the danger that everybody in Germany was in, especially if you weren't of the quote-unquote chosen race, and how people were caught up in the atrocities. In the 1998 version, they actually take it a step further, and in the final scene, it ends with the Kit Kat Club dancers and the MC being dressed up in the garb of concentration camp prisoners and it's made very clear that that you know it's suffering it's it's dark there have actually been a couple of non-broadway productions that i've seen that even take it a 
a kind of darker turn. And that last scene, you don't have the, the, the pulsing white. You don't have them in concentration camp clothing. But I've seen more than one production where the Kit Kat Club dancers and the MC are actually dressed up as Nazis, where the implication is they've become collaborators, that they've become part of this darkness. What I find interesting about the various ways you can stage the ending is that this is a moment where the show doesn't exactly tell you what to do. And so the director has to come in and make a decision as to how these people's stories as they are, and we'll get to that in a minute, but how these characters are going to be wrapped up. It's interesting to me to place them in one uniform or the other because it it tells a very different story for those people and it makes everything that's come before it uh, very different. You know, it suddenly puts it in a very different light. But I think what I like the most about the intention behind the original ending is that the show throughout was always intended to serve as a mirror for its audience. I mean, literally in the original production, the backdrop was a set of mirrors that kind of hung over the cabaret where most of the show took place. That was just sort of this constant reminder of, of self-reflection and in paring it down to just this whiteness with Sally, arguably one of the, the more relatable characters in the show, it really, really forces some introspection for the audience in a way that I think was very intentional for this show. Well, and I'll say this about the show. It's not subtle in its commentary. This is a show that bashes you over the head with what it's trying to say. There's nothing pulled. There's no punches that are, that are pulled back or anything like that. It's very upfront about, you know, there's that old line for evil to flourish all that good men need to do is nothing or I've horribly mangled that line. Um, but that's kind of what this show becomes is evil happens when good men do nothing. And that's what we see here. Um, with a lot of these characters, there aren't character arcs. There aren't moments of growth. Um, you've got Cliff and you've got Sally. Sally starts as this very carefree British cabaret singer And she ends as this very carefree British cabaret singer. I mean, one of the last songs she sings is Life is a Cabaret. Literally, well, it's just all fun and games because we're just not going to worry about that other stuff. You even see it in Frau Schneider and Herr Schultz. You know, Herr Schultz, his last moment on stage is things are going to be okay because I know German people because... I am German. And it's like, they're not going to see that. We know what comes next. We know what's probably going to happen to this man. There is nothing subtle about it. Yeah, it's, um, it is unnerving. You know, we were talking about uh, before we started recording how neither of us at this moment in time can think of another show where the characters don't really change from the beginning to the end. and it's jarring to see from the audience perspective how much these characters go through because everyone in the show goes through a good amount to then just end up in the same place to, to your point that 
not taking any actions and then seeing, you know, us as audience members knowing what's about to happen in Germany at this time, but also seeing at the very end what is reflected by the director and how it all ends up for these people. You made a really good point before we started, and it's something I wanted to make sure we talked about a little bit. When you're talking about the character of the MC and you're talking about the Kit Kat Club dancers, it's interesting because it's almost as if they're not characters necessarily at all. They're not part of the arc. And it's something we talked about a little bit in the rundown about how they function almost as a Greek chorus type providing commentary. But that's it. I mean, there's that's their whole purpose. It is characters as narrators who aren't typical narrators in the sense that they don't say this is what happens in the story and this is how we get from point A to point B. They just offer that commentary in a way where they move in and out of the world of the story, but are never really engaging with the characters who create the drama. Well, and it's interesting too, because some of the commentary they provide, it's not necessarily to illuminate. Sometimes it's to mock. Sometimes it's to make fun of. I mean, after Cliff agrees to go to Paris for the first time to get the secret briefcase for Ernst, then the uh, MC sings the money song, which is this deeply sarcastic song about how great money is and how we're all, you know, sometimes willing to just close our eyes and plug our ears and do what needs to be done because we need that money. And so much of their music is in that commentary vein. Um, they're not illuminating us. They're, they're chiding us and they're almost mocking them. And I think that's part of what has made the music of this show so successful throughout time is that it doesn't exist in an era. It exists out of time and serves as commentary in a way that no matter when you hear it, it is still relevant and potent. Well, and some of it's even become kind of this cultural meme. I mean, how much in the last 20 years have you heard in pop culture this whole um, Willkommen, Bienvenue, Welcome? You know, it, it, it's almost be, it's almost replaced this, this golden age, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages. You know, it, it's become culturally relevant. It's kind of wormed its way in. Even the song Cabaret, in context is very much this fingers in my ears, la la la, I'm not listening to you because I'm going to cling to this ideal. But on the surface, it is a quintessential nightclub cabaret number that is well-constructed. The, the lyrics are fantastic. And when completely separated from the show's context, is a song people love to hear, people love to listen to. And anytime it's included in a cabaret night, we'll bring the house down. Okay, I'm gonna ask you a question that you didn't know I was gonna ask you. Do you think, and I have to confess that I'm guilty of doing this, I have programmed Vilkomen out of context in a cabaret. Do you think that by separating these songs from their narrative context in the show, we are doing a disservice to the story and the point that Candor and Ebb were trying to make in writing this show? Or do you think 
it's okay for us to appreciate them as lighthearted and enjoyable pieces outside of, you know, 1930s Germany. That's tough. Um, with Willkommen, I, I would argue now we're going to completely, we're going to completely isolate the ending for a second and actually thinking about it now that probably calls into question my answer here is that Vilkomen kind of is because it's the first it's the first number of the show it's this lighthearted fun it actually reminds me a lot of the opening number to La Caja Fall where you have a primary character who introduces everyone and has these little witty stories and quips about everyone and what they do and what they don't do and it's fun and it introduces and it's it's a good tune now, Vilkomen also ends the show, and no matter how you portray it, no matter what costume you're dressing your characters in, there's a very dark twist to it. There's a very dark turn to it. It ends with that same... So the show opens with a snare drum roll, a cymbal crash going into the music. So the ending is the exact same way in reverse. He sings, he trails off, there's a snare drum roll to a cymbal crash, end of show. So if we're putting it in that context, yeah, I think we are. I think we're, we're kind of destroying the effectiveness of some of this music. With Cabaret itself, with the title song, had you asked me five years ago, I would have said, no, it's a great number. It's a great excerpt. Um, and... It's okay. But knowing, you know, times being what they are, the context is king. And I feel like the context of Cabaret in the plot changes the song enough that it may not be the greatest thing for us to excerpt for a Cabaret night anymore. There are other songs that could work. I think I agree with you. You know, I, uh, the, the show that I did where I included Vilkom in was back in 2014, 2015, maybe somewhere around there. And I taught this show in, uh, in a class that I was teaching on musical theater history back in 2016. And I have to say that in revisiting the show now, where we are now and with everything that's happening in our world, uh, it was a lot harder to enjoy reading about the show and thinking about the show than it was four or five years ago. And I guess maybe the best thing to say is that I hope we can find a way back to where we were four or five years ago. Well, and, and what's kind of funny, and, and we've talked about this in, in openings of other shows, we record way in advance. Um, but everyone is listening to this on November 11th. So are they really, they are, everyone is listening to this eight days after the coming national election. So this is an interesting little time capsule because you're listening to this now, but we have no clue what's coming. What's going to happen. It is the end of September here, and I will reiterate what I just said. I hope we are on our way back to something that was roughly five-ish years ago. I think that's a real good place to end this for today.
Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.